Hi, my name is Isla Watson, and I am your true crime consultant, ready to talk to you about true crime. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome back to a brand new episode of True Crime Consultant. First of all, thank you so much for being here and for supporting my true crime journey. If you listened to the previous episodes on the disappearance of Natalie Holloway and you found it interesting, please spread the word. I know I only just started, but I'm truly enjoying the journey and the process so far, and it is also extremely exciting and motivating to see more people catching on slowly. So please keep sharing and spreading the word, and thank you so much for your support. As for today, I am introducing History Sundays. Every last Sunday of the month, I'll discuss a true crime case that took place at least a century ago. We'll dive into some background regarding the time the crimes took place in and draw on some similarities and differences. The historical context in which events take place is essential and also being able to compare life now to life then is extremely interesting. I am very excited to do this as I really enjoy history and of course I also very much enjoy true crime so it seems like the perfect combination to me. Crime has been around for too long not to look at the past so that's what we're going to do. Let's dive into our first History Sunday case, the case of Dr. Holly Harvey Crippen. The late 1800s to the early 1900s were a time of great change and excitement. During this period, the world saw the rise of industrialization, urbanization, and new forms of communication and transportation that transformed the way people lived and worked. The era was marked by major scientific discoveries, artistic movements, and political upheavals that set the stage for the 20th century. The growth of new forms of entertainment, such as movies and sports, gave people new ways to relax and escape the rigors of everyday life. This era was a time of great hope and optimism, but it was also a time of social upheaval, labor strife, and political conflict. Despite the challenges, this era remains one of the most fascinating and transformative in modern history. So the early 1900s was an interesting time filled with all kinds of developments. But in this case, it must have been especially interesting for those observing the marriage of Holly and Cora Crippen unravel from up close. On the outside, Holly and Cora Crippen seemed to have an okay marriage, until one day when Holly told everyone that Cora had left him and had returned to California. He later added that she had died and had been cremated there. But little did they know, Holly was playing a game of two lies and one truth. Can you guess which part of his story was the truth? On September 11, 1862, a wee boy was born in Coldwater, Michigan, USA. His parents named him Holly Harvey Crippen, and he was the only surviving child of Andres Skinner and Myron Augustus Crippen. Holly's father, Myron, was a merchant. And it seems as though Holly's childhood was as normal as it could have been during that time. Holly Crippen went on to study at the University of Michigan Homeopathic Medical School, but graduated from the Cleveland Homeopathic Medical College in 1884. Two years later, he moved to New York City to study ocular medicine. And after graduating in 1887, he worked as an intern at Hahnemann Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And that is where he met a nurse named Charlotte Jane Bell, who had come from Dublin in Ireland. The two fell in love and married in 1887, and after this they moved to San Diego, where their son Otto was born in 1889. 
Now, sadly, in January of 1892, Charlotte died of an apparent stroke shortly before she was set to give birth to the couple's second child. A devastated Crippen sent his son Otto to Michigan to live with his parents, and he moved to the East Coast, back to New York City. There, he started working as a homeopath, as he was qualified to do so. Now, just to give you some background on homeopathy, because I was not too familiar with what it was, homeopathy is a medical system of alternative medicines based on the belief that the body can cure itself. Those who practice it use tiny amounts of natural substances like plants and minerals. They believe that they stimulate the healing process. It was developed in the late 1700s in Germany, and homeopathy was actually commonplace in the United States at the end of the 19th century, after dozens of homeopathic medical schools were founded all across the country beginning in the mid-1800s. Homeopathy largely fell out of favor with the American public in the early 1900s. As the standards for medical education were elevated at the turn of the century, most homeopathic medical colleges closed. Increasingly rigorous regulations on the sale of pharmaceuticals also contributed to the decline of homeopathy in the U.S. Still, however, there remain many followers of homeopathic medicine today. So-called home remedies continue to be prevalent today, many of which were derived from homeopathic practices. Supporters of homeopathy value that their medicines are largely derived from naturally occurring substances compared to the manufactured chemical composition of most prescription pharmaceuticals. This distinction and the fact that nearly all homeopathic remedies include such diluted amounts of active ingredients has largely allowed them to be exempt from the regulatory requirements that are otherwise imposed on all other pharmaceutical drugs. Although not nearly as popular today as it once was, support for homeopathy remains an interesting point of reflection in the science-focused world of medicine. Now, soon after Holly Crippen arrived back in New York, he started working at a medical practice in Brooklyn. And not long into his new career as a homeopath, he treated a patient named Cora Turner. Her stage name was Belle Elmore, but neither of these names were her real names. She was born as Kunigunde Makamotsky to a Russian-Polish father and a German mother. And when they met, Holly was 30, while Cora was only 17. Yikes. It did not take long for them to start going on dinner dates, which is when Cora shared that it was her dream to become a successful opera singer, hence her stage name, Belle Elmore. She also told Crippen that she was a quote-unquote kept woman, as in, a married man paid for her apartment and her singing lessons in return for sex and companionship. Things took a turn when Cora told Crippen that her lover was planning on leaving his wife so he could run away with Cora and start a new life somewhere else. Now, Crippen was absolutely in love with Cora. He was head over heels. So he decided to propose to her because if she married him, she could not run away with some other married guy. The couple married in Jersey City, New Jersey, on September 1st, 1892. Walking down the street, it must have been an interesting sight to see the two together. Cora was young and apparently voluptuous and very attractive. Mind you, she was 17 at the time, but this is how she was described. And on the other hand, Holly Harvey Crippen wore glasses, had a receding hairline, and was quite short as he was only about 5 foot 4 inches tall 
which is about 1 meter and 63 centimeters. Now their looks were not the only thing that were very different from each other, as apparently their personalities differed a lot as well. Holly is often described as quiet, gentle, and submissive, and also as ever supportive of Cora's ambitions of becoming a successful opera singer. In contrast, many sources describe Cora as intimidating and extravagant, as well as overbearing and dominant. As Crippen biographer Eric Larson noted in his book Thunderstruck, a journalist back in the day described Cora as robust and animal, and a woman whose vitality was of that loud, aggressive, and physical kind that seems to exhaust the atmosphere around it and is undoubtedly exhausting to live with. Now, to me, this description of a woman is very, you know, early 1900s. I cannot imagine picking up a newspaper or whatever and reading an article and having someone describe a woman like that. I think this kind of gives us a glimpse into how men viewed women back in the day and what the social norms were like for men and women and how women were expected to behave. I think that in general, women were expected to have less of a voice and less of an opinion back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So I think this type of description is a very good example of that. Now, in any case, clearly, Cora had a mind of her own, so good for you, Cora. But to add to this, to add to how people describe Cora, some historians had speculated that Cora had married Crippen because she calculated that a doctor's salary would be enough to support her lavish lifestyle. Now, on this point, I cannot argue with them, since she clearly did not marry him for his looks. If you want to see what he looks like, you can head over to my Instagram at True Crime Consultant. I have posted pictures of Crippen, and trust me, she definitely did not marry him for his looks. I think that at that point, Cora had two options. Option A, run away with a married 30-something-year-old man, or option B, marry a 30-something-year-old doctor. She did what she had to do. In 1894, Crippen started a new job working for Dr. James Munyon, a homeopath who had established a successful patent medicine business called the Munyon Homeopathic Home Remedy Company. Apparently, Dr. James Munyon described Crippen as as docile as a kitten, but his son later recalled sensing anxiety in Crippen's life as Cora liked men other than her husband, he commented, which worried the doctor greatly. So according to various sources, Cora started having affairs and cheating on her husband early on in their marriage. In the mid-1890s, Crippen went to London in order to manage Munyon's London office. Initially, Cora stayed behind in New York in order to continue pursuing her singing career. Unfortunately, after little to no success, in 1897, Cora joined her husband in London. Now, because Crippen's US medical qualifications were not sufficient to allow him to practice as a doctor in the UK, he continued working as a distributor of Munyon's patent medicines. And more bad news for Crippen, because unfortunately for him, Crippen was fired by Munyans in 1899 for spending too much time managing his wife's stage career. As I said before, he was apparently trying to be very supportive of Cora's singing career. And this came back to haunt him because he was fired from a very good job. After this, Crippen became the manager of Drowett's Institution for the Deaf. And it is here that he hired a young woman named Ethel Leneve, a typist who eventually became Crippen's personal secretary. 
Ethel Lenev would later tell authorities that during work hours, Cora frequently stormed into Crippen's office to rage about one thing or another. At first, Ethel offered emotional support to her boss, who was being bullied and intimidated by his wife. But the affair soon turned physical, as by 1905, the two were in the middle of a full-blown physical love affair. In 1908, Ethel even became pregnant with Crippen's child, but sadly lost the baby. Now in 1905, the Crippens moved to 39 Hilldrop Crescent, Camden Road, Holloway in London, where they took in lodgers to supplement Crippen's meager income. You see, what he was earning at his new job as manager of Jowett's Institution for the Deaf was not as much as he used to when he worked for Munya's homeopathic company. So, you know, they had this bigger house and there were a couple of empty bedrooms that they would, basically like an Airbnb kind of situation back in the day, so they would get some extra money. And this was needed because Cora was a fancy girl. She had a lavish lifestyle and, you know, she needed that cash. Now, Unfortunately for Crippen, a lot of unfortunately is for him here. Unfortunately for Crippen, Cora had not left her desire for other men in New York, as she frequently had affairs with the male lodgers. So at this point, both Cora and Holly Crippen are having affairs, and this is where things start to escalate and truly get messy. By December of 1909, the relationship between Crippen and his wife had completely soured and Cora had gone to their bank and presented them with a notice that she intended to withdraw all the funds in their joint account. On January 15, 1910, Crippen went to a local chemist's shop and ordered five grains of hyacin hydrobromide. As a homeopath, he frequently visited this chemist's shop to purchase things such as morphine salts and cocaine to make medicines and anesthetics for his patients. Hyosin was known for its tranquilizing effect and therefore his request did not seem strange or surprising. The people at the chemist's shop knew him and there was no reason to be suspicious of anything. Crippen received his order on January 19th and within two weeks, Cora had disappeared after a party at their home on January 31st, 1910. On February 2nd, 1910, so two days after Cora had gone missing, Crippen sent a note to the Music Hall Ladies Guild informing them that Cora, the guild's current treasurer, had left London. And when he returned the guild's ledger and checkbook, which was in Cora's possession, the guild members were left with questions about why one of their more popular members had disappeared or had left without saying anything. And it was not just about the fact that she was one of their more popular members who had a, quite a prominent role within his guild. It was also the fact that she was their friend and she did not say anything, she just left. Crippen then started telling friends and acquaintances that his wife had hurriedly been called back to California to care for a relative of hers who'd fallen ill. And a few weeks later, he announced that his wife had died in California and had been cremated there. Meanwhile, his mistress Ethel Lenev moved in with him and began openly wearing coarse clothes and jewelry. And as you can imagine, Cora's friends started seeing red flags everywhere. So first, Cora apparently leaves to California without saying anything. And then all of a sudden, she's dead. And here we also have Ethel moving into Cora's bed, wearing her clothes and jewelry out in public. 
Holly and Ethel are living life like nothing happened. It just didn't make any sense to them. So after Cora's friends went to the London police, also known as Scotland Yard, Detective Walter Dew paid a visit to Dr. Holly Crippen. Crippen gave the police permission to search his house, and Detective Dew also interrogated him and asked him a couple of questions. During the interrogation, the balding homeopath admitted that he had made up the story about his wife's death. He told Detective Dew that the truth was that Cora had left him for another man and that she and her lover had gone back to America. He said that he lied because he was embarrassed and feared a scandal. You know how it was back in the day, right? In order to deflect questions about the date of her return, he also made up the story about the fact that she had died. Detective Dew left Crippen's home thinking that the man's story seemed plausible. The man had appeared calm and collected and even allowed the police to search his home. At this point, the detective did not believe a crime had occurred. As a professional singer who was known to flirt with the male lodgers, who occasionally rented rooms in her home, he likely assumed that she had run away from her submissive, timid husband and was enjoying life elsewhere in the arms of another man. Poor old Crippen was not aware of the fact that the detective believed his story. Crippen thought they were on to him, and he panicked. During the first week of July 1910, Crippen and Ethel fled to Brussels, Belgium. And shortly after Crippen had fled to Belgium with his lover, Detective Du, he was not an idiot, okay? He might have been pleased with Crippen's story so far, but he also wanted to make sure that the story wouldn't change. So he, you know, he was thinking, why don't I go check up on my good old friend, Holly Crippen? Let's see what he's up to. Let's see if his story is still the same. And let's see how he's doing after his wife left him for another man. So the detective returned to Crippen's home for a follow-up. But to his surprise, when he arrived, he found that Crippen was gone and that there was no sign of him whatsoever. And of course, alarm bells went off in his head. It was definitely a major red flag and very suspicious that Crippen had vanished. If he had nothing to hide and if nothing was going on, why would he run off? Why would he flee the place? So he immediately issued an alert. And after this, you know, other officers came to the house and the disappearance of Crippen led the police of Scotland Yard to perform another three searches of the house. And eventually, during the fourth and final search, they found the torso of a human body buried under the brick floor of the basement. The remains were later identified as being Cora by a piece of skin from the abdomen. It had a, a scar on it. Apparently, Cora had had surgery many years ago, and the scar matched the type of surgery that she'd had. Now, they just found the torso because the heads and the limbs had all been removed. And also, they were never recovered, by the way, which is very creepy. William Wilcox, later Sir William Wilcox, senior scientific analyst to the home office, found traces of the calming drug scopolamine in the torso. Now, scopolamine is also known as hyacinth or devil's breath. And remember, Crippen went to the chemist on January 15th to buy hyacinth. A scopolamine or hyacinth or devil's breath is a natural or synthetically produced tropane alkaloid, an anticholinergic drug that is formally used as a medication for treating motion sickness and post-operative nausea and vomiting. But it is also known for its tranquilizing effect. 
It was first written about in 1881 and started to be used for anesthesia around 1900. When used by injection, effects begin about after 20 minutes and last up to 8 hours, but it can also be used orally. So this was an interesting find, right? Because I'm giving a little spoiler, but we know that Hawley had bought this hyacin and now it is found that there was hyacin in the torso. On July 20th, after realizing that the police were on their trail, Crippen and Ethel Lenev left Brussels and went to Antwerp. There they boarded the SS Montrose in an attempt to flee to Quebec, Canada. And I believe Crippen found out about the police being on to him through the tabloids. You see, by now, the British newspapers were creating a media frenzy. They were publicly scolding Detective Dew and Scotland Yard for letting the killer of a young woman get away. Why was Crippen not put under surveillance sooner? And how could they just have let a murderer flee the country? The journey across the Atlantic Ocean from Antwerp to Quebec would take about 11 days. And not long after the 11-day journey had started, the SS Monroe's captain, Henry Kendall, suspected that Crippen and Ethel Inev were on board. All ships had been notified to look for the fugitive couple, and he realized that the shy and adolescent male passenger who had booked passage with his elderly father was actually a young woman. Ethel was disguised as a boy. Captain Henry George Kendall recognized the fugitives, and just before the ship got out of range of his onboard shipboard transmitter, he had telegraphist Lawrence Ernest Hughes send a wireless telegram to the British authorities at Scotland Yard. The message read, Have strong suspicions that Crippen London seller murderer and accomplice are among saloon passengers. Mustache taken off, growing beard, accomplice dressed as boy, manner and build undoubtedly a girl. Good note here that when Crippen left London, he shaved off his mustache, which he had had for years, and which was kind of his trademark. It was his thing. He was known for having a mustache. So he shaved off his mustache and started growing a beard as a way to disguise himself. Now, the funny thing about this whole thing, the funny thing about Crippen being recognized by Captain Kendall is that if he would have traveled third class, he probably would have escaped Captain Kendall's notice. You see, people in third class were hidden away, out of sight, and not important enough to be seen by the captain as they were not paying enough to be relevant. Crippen had bought two first-class tickets for him and Ethel, and that was a far cry away. It was a very big difference. Third class and first class were very different from each other. In some cases, there was a class below third, which was called the steerage, but oftentimes third class was the steerage and it definitely would not have been very fancy or comfortable. And just to give you an example, first-class tickets for the Titanic, which set sail two years after Crippen's journey to Quebec, by some estimations would have cost a hundred times what a third-class passenger paid for their place in steerage. But life is all about choices, and Crippen made his choice that day. Comfort over everything else. Once Detective Dew had gotten word about the discovery made by Captain Kendall, he boarded the White Star Liner SS Laurentic from Liverpool. This ship was faster than the SS Montrose that Crippen and Ethel were on, so Detective was able to get to Quebec before Crippen. Upon his arrival, he immediately contacted the local Canadian authorities and explained the situation to them. Initially, Detective Dew was not sure that Crippen and Ethel were actually on board 
the SS Monroes, because reports of their sightings were coming in from all over the world and several innocent men had been detained and questioned as a result. He was worried that this might be another one of those false sightings. But that was not his only concern. This case had blown up and due to the press coverage, reporters were already gathering at the Quebec dock, which presented a problem. He wanted to avoid being spotted by the press, so they wouldn't follow him onto the ship and spoo Crippen and Ethel. So Detective Dew disguised himself as a ship's pilot to go unnoticed and boarded the SS Montrose before its passengers disembarked to check out the suspects. Once on board, he quickly recognized Crippen and confirmed that the two people that Captain Kendall had seen were indeed his fugitives. Now, as if this entire transatlantic arrest was not crazy enough, how Detective Dew arrested Crippen is the cherry on top. Captain Kendall then invited Crippen to meet the quote-unquote pilots as they came aboard. And as Crippen approached, Detective Dew removed his pilot's cap and said, Good morning, Dr. Crippen. Do you know me? I'm Chief Inspector Dew from Scotland Yard. After a pause, Crippen allegedly replied, Thank God it's over. The suspense has been too great. I couldn't stand it any longer. He then held out his wrists for the handcuffs. Holly, Harvey Crippen, and Ethel Lenev were arrested on board the SS Montrose on July 31, 1910. The great transatlantic escape of Holly Crippen and Ethel Lenev had ended with a transatlantic arrest. And with that arrest, Crippen became one of the first criminals to be captured with the help of wireless telegraphy. Wireless telegraphy or radio telegraphy is the transmission of telegraph signals without the use of wires and through radio waves. In radio telegraphy, information is transmitted by pulses of radio waves of two different lengths called dots and dashes, which spell out text messages, usually in Morse code. In a manual system, the sending operator taps on a switch called a telegraph key, which turns the transmitter on and off, producing the pulses of radio waves. At the receiver, the pulses are audible in the receiver's speakers as beeps, which are translated back to text by an operator who knows Morse code. Wireless telegraphy or radio telegraphy was developed in the late 19th century and revolutionized communication by allowing messages to be transmitted over long distances without the need for physical connection. Marconi, an Italian inventor, is credited with developing the first practical system of wireless telegraphy in 1895 and soon after commercial systems were developed for ship-to-ship -ship and ship-to-shore communication. Radio telegraphy also played a crucial role in the development of early radio broadcasting and became a cornerstone of long-distance communication during World War I and beyond. The invention of wireless telegraphy marked the beginning of the wireless age and paved the way for further developments in wireless communication technology. So the fact that this is one of the first cases in which criminals were captured with the help of wireless communication, it's insane. It's, it's really cool. So that was a little sidetrack into the developments that happened in wireless communication technology. Now we can go back to Crippen. On the 18th of October 1910, Crippen was tried at the Central Criminal Court, also known as the Old Bailey, in London. The trial lasted four days. Crippen's defense, led by Alfred Tobin, was very simple and very straightforward. The body found in the cellar of his home was not Cora's. That was literally their defense. They maintained that Cora had gone to America with another man named Bruce Miller. 
So the body must have been of some poor unknown woman and had been placed there before he and Cora had moved there in 1905, suggesting that a previous owner of the house was responsible for the placement of the remains. It was therefore crucial to the prosecution to prove that the body was Cora's. The first witnesses on the prosecution side were pathologists, and their main focus was on removing any doubt that the remains found were not Cora's. One of the pathologists, Bernard Spilsbury, testified that they initially could not identify the torso remains or even see whether they were male or female. However, Bernard Spilsbury found a piece of skin in the shallow grave that had a scar on it, and medical records showed that Cora had such a scar on her lower abdomen after a surgery that she had once had. More conclusive was the fact that the remains had been wrapped in a pajama jacket, and a tag inside that jacket led to the manufacturers, Jones Brothers, not to be confused with the Jonas Brothers. They confirmed that this particular cloth and pattern were not issued until late 1908, proving that the body must have been placed there after that date. In addition, it was said that Cora had gifted the pajamas to Crippen the year before and that the bottoms were still in the closet. So this contested the defense's story that the body must have been placed there by the previous owner of the house. This and the scar was consistent with the body being that of Cora. Another interesting fact, of course, was that medical tests had shown that the flesh contained traces of hyacinth, a poison, and it was known that Crippen had purchased that substance in January, two weeks before Cora had vanished. Throughout the proceedings and at his sentencing, Crippen showed no remorse for his wife and only showed concern for his lover's reputation. All of this together was enough for the jury, who took just under 30 minutes to find Crippen guilty of his wife's murder. On October 25th, Ethel and Nev was put on trial as an accessory to murder and found not guilty. A subsequent appeal on behalf of Crippen was dismissed and his death sentence was confirmed. On Wednesday, 23rd of November, 1910, at 9am, a 48-year-old Crippen was hanged at Pentonville in London. Crippen's last request had been for a photograph of Ethel and some of her letters to be buried with him in his unmarked grave, and this request was granted. Ethel Lenev sailed to the United States before settling in Canada and finding work as a typist. She later returned to the UK in 1915 and died in 1967. Crippen never gave any reason for killing his wife, but as with all murder cases, people had theories of their own. One was by the late Victorian and Edwardian barrister, Edward Marshall Hall, who believed that Crippen was using hyacinth on his wife as a depressant or an aphrodisiac, but accidentally gave her an overdose and then panicked when she died. Right. Then, in 1981, several British newspapers reported that Sir Hugh Rice Rankin claimed to have met Ethel Lenev in 1930 in Australia, where she told him that Crippen murdered his wife because she had syphilis. Honestly, back in the day, people were not, people were clearly not true crime obsessed or they were not good at this anyways because these theories suck. I don't think that any of these theories are correct. To me, it is quite evident why Crippen did what he did. As we know, Cora and Holly Crippen's marriage had run its course to say the least. Cora had had many affairs, and Crippen had known about most, if not all. 
Things had gotten so bad that Crippen even started having his own affair. He had fallen in love with Ethel and Nev. It wasn't just an affair. At this point, however, I do not think that Crippen had really planned on murdering his wife. I think things changed for him when he found out that Cora had gone to their bank and presented them with a notice that she intended to withdraw all the funds from their shared account. This must have really frustrated him, even angered him, as he had been the main breadwinner their entire marriage and a lot of their money had gone to supporting Cora's lavish lifestyle and her dreams of becoming a successful singer. And after belittling him their entire marriage and hum humiliating him with many affairs, she was now going to leave and take all his money? No, she had crossed the line. So Crippen went to buy the hyacinth and planned to use it either to get Cora to pass out or overdose. And after that, he, perhaps with the help of Ethel and Nev, dismembered her body and got rid of her head, her limbs, as well as her reproductive organs and pelvic bones. I think, I also think that that is an, a fact that is quite extreme because dismembering a body is very nasty, it's, it's very personal, it's very gory, so to go that extra step and do that is a lot, but some people believe that they went that extra mile or he went that extra mile to dismember her and get rid of her head and reproductive organs and pelvic bones to kind of slow down the identification of the body and to make it difficult for people to decide whether it was male or female. And this worked because it was a difficult task for police to determine, first of all, whether this was a male or a female. Now, some people say that because Crippen was so timid and he was kind of, you know, a little, he seemed like a little scared kind of a man, very timid, short, they did not think that he had what it took to do something so gruesome. But I think that after being married to a woman who apparently yelled at him, belittled him and disrespected him for years and made him feel like less than a man, a lot of anger had built up. And I think that people are capable of things you wouldn't expect given the right circumstances. So yes, I think even little, old, timid, innocent, scared, Holly Harvey Crippen, I think even he was able to do something so gruesome. I do not believe that Cora had gone back to the USA with her lover, not without saying goodbye to her friends, and especially not without all that money she was planning to withdraw. Remember, Cora had a lavish lifestyle. She wasn't just going to give that up for some man. And also, why would she leave without any of her clothes or her jewelry? It doesn't make any sense. And there's a couple things that I would like to say on this case before coming to an end. First of all, I think it's very interesting to see that the art of being a detective and, and solving a murder, it hasn't changed a lot in essence, right? In, in its pure, raw form. Of course, we have all this technology now, DNA, etc. But back in the day, the fact that they were able to say, okay, we found this body, can we determine whether it's Cora or not? And they had this scar tissue and they were able to compare it. They looked at her records, her medical records, and they were able to determine that the, the flesh, the tissue of the torso that they found had hyacinth in it. They were able to run or do these kinds of tests. I think it's so interesting that even 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, they were already at this point and this way of thinking and coming to conclusions and gathering information and kind of putting the puzzle pieces together, right? They were already at this point. And I think it's so interesting to see that part of human beings that we always have been this curious, that we've always had this ability to ask questions 
and then try to answer them and see what do we have here that we can put together in order to come to a conclusion. And this is a very good example of that. You know, they had this torso, they had pajama bottoms. I'm pretty sure that they mentioned the hyacinth and the fact that he'd bought this hyacinth earlier. This case, even though it was committed over a hundred years ago, I think it was solved in a very similar manner as it would have been solved today. The only difference being that today in this day and age, we have DNA analysis and, you know, they might have been able to quickly and with more certainty determine whether or not that it was Cora's body. But other than that, I think that the steps that they took and the way that they solved this case is not much different than the steps that they would have taken today. So yeah, I'm just impressed. I thought this was a very fun case to discuss. And one final aspect that I would like to say is, I don't know if you have noticed yourself. I did mention it before. When Detective Dew left Crippen's house for the first time, Detective Dew believed his story. He believed that Cora had left to America with a lover. But Crippen, like he did not think that a crime had been committed. But Crippen didn't know that. He panicked. Clearly he was not meant to be a murderer because he panicked. He panicked and he fled. And that is the reason that the police were on to him. Because if he would have stayed put and he would have had the same story when Detective Duke came back, they would have probably never suspected anything. But it was the fact that he had left the country that Detective Dew was like, wait a minute, if you're innocent and if you have nothing to hide, why would you, why would you leave? That's weird. That is suspicious. So if he wouldn't have run away, he would have never been arrested and we would have never had this case to discuss about, probably. There is an unnamed source that I found online and they put it quite nicely. They said, Inspector Dew was initially convinced that no crime had occurred. If Crippen had not fled, no new search would have been made of his home and no evidence of murder discovered. A more confident murderer would have remained free. And I think that is a good note to end on, that if Holly Crippen would have been a little bit more confident and if he would have believed in himself a little more, he would have gotten away with it. So the key message for today's case is believe in yourself. No matter what you do, just believe in yourself, be confident, and you will... You know, you, you will get there. You will achieve your goals. Thank you so much for listening today. I really had a good time researching this case, you know, learning a little bit about history. I definitely learned a lot while researching this case about homeopathy, about hyacinth, radio telegraphy, all those things. And I hope that you also learned a little and that you were able to get kind of a view of how things were done back in the day, especially when it comes to solving a case. So thank you guys for listening and if you have any comments on today's case, any thoughts, maybe what you think happened, maybe your thoughts on these History Sundays that we're going to do every last Sunday of the month, please reach out to me. I'm on Instagram and on TikTok at True Crime Consultant. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a good review and please share my podcast with your friends and your family. It really means a lot to me and I'm really happy with the support so far and I would really appreciate you guys also sharing my podcast and getting the word out there. I'll see you guys next week. Until then, stay safe, take care of yourself, do a mental health check on yourself, do a mental health check on your friends, call your mom, stay in school and yeah, I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in and God bless.
Hi, my name is Isla Watson, and I am your true crime consultant, ready to talk to you about true crime.